0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Tonight in our message, we will receive something of an introductory message to this important chapter in Matthew's gospel. I anticipate that we will have two more messages to take from Matthew chapter 10 after tonight's But tonight, let's hear the whole chapter in one reading. Matthew chapter 10. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that here in our hand, soon in our ear, will be the word of God. How much judgment must a people be under who cannot even hear the word of God. Lord, we thank you that you have granted us this privilege, this blessing to have the word of God publicly read and preached and that you have even given us our own copy to carry to and fro to open when and where we please. Father, we pray that you would open us, that you would shine the light of your word into our hearts. We pray that we would indeed have a true spiritual experience tonight in the hearing of your word. We pray that we would, by your power, your spirit, recognize the very authority of God therein as your word is read and preached. And that we would by your power, by your spirit, be bound to it and it bound to us. And that it would be a light in us that carries us to Jesus Christ everlastingly. In his name we ask, amen. Matthew 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. The more we stay away from our Bibles, the more we keep from reading scripture, the more unprepared we are for the ordinary realities of how Christ advances his kingdom of grace in this present evil age. If we do not spend much time in our Bibles, we will find ourselves soon thinking that Christ should only advance his kingdom of grace in the ways those who are opposed to it would like it to be advanced. The complaints of the opposition will start to sound reasonable to us when we are unschooled in the way of the Master, Now, the opponents of Christ's kingdom say, don't come to our villages and knock on the door of our houses. Don't do that. That's too up close. That's too personal. Agree to that, and we will let you advance this kingdom of grace. The opponents say, don't come speaking of a day of judgment. Agree to that, and we will let you advance this kingdom of Jesus Christ. Or they say, don't come and fill up our courts with your uncivil behavior and your violation of our reasonable ordinances. Agree to that, and we will let you advance this kingdom of Christ. Or they say, don't come and disrupt the peace of our governors and our kings. Agree to that, and we will let you advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Don't come and create conflict among our families. Who would otherwise be at peace if you Christians weren't around? Don't come into our cities and villages creating strife between parents and children. Agree to that, and we will let you advance this kingdom of Jesus Christ. And definitely, the opposition says, don't come with all those disruptive claims that Jesus, your master, already brought into our ears. Don't come making those claims all over again. Agree to that, and we will let you advance this kingdom of Jesus Christ. What all of these sly requests desire is a Christ who comes into the world without causing the world any conflict. And the more we are out of our Bibles the more time we spend away from the voice and words of our Lord and his apostles, the more reasonable we will begin to think the opposition's demands are. And when one of us gets arrested or thrown into prison, we will be tempted to form a committee to find out what we can do better to avoid that next time. Beloved, what you have heard tonight in Matthew 10, is the flat-out straight truth that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of grace, advances by conflict. That is how the kingdom advances. In tonight's passage, our Lord Jesus makes clear that his kingdom has come to advance against another kingdom. The kingdom of sin and Satan, which all mankind by nature is under the dominion of, Jesus is coming against it. Not accommodating it, not negotiating it, not making concessions to it. Jesus is coming against it, as confirmed by verse 1 of our passage tonight. Look what it says. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. If you don't understand or if you don't believe that there are two kingdoms in conflict in this present evil age, you already are under the dark spell of one of those kingdoms. You are already happy under the illusion of sin and Satan, thinking that you do not need to be liberated. This proves all the more the necessity for the conflict of the kingdoms to begin in your own soul, in your own heart. Our Lord calls his twelve disciples. Gives them authority to do exactly what he has been doing, as you have listened these last several weeks through Matthew eight and nine, cast out unclean spirits, and in verse seven he commands them to proclaim exactly what he has been proclaiming: the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is exactly what he is preaching in Mark. Excuse me, in Matthew four, the fullness of God's reign the fullness of God's rule in the salvation of sinners, the kingdom of heaven, it is no longer a thing to be waiting for. It is at hand in Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. And Jesus will not sit by in a private room above a pub on a quiet street waiting to see if anyone comes and wants to make an appointment with him. That is not how he is going to advance the kingdom of grace. He sends out the 12 apostles, the reconstitution of the kingdom of Israel. Under his kingship, he sends out the 12 apostles because, as he just said at the end of the previous chapter, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, Matthew ten thirty eight. Before that prayer is even on the lips of the church, Jesus is answering it. Now, under what conditions are the lost sheep of the house of Israel going to be harvested? Under the conditions of conflict. This is what Matthew 10 is all about. Why conflict? Because the kingdom of grace comes to utterly destroy the kingdom of sin and Satan. The kingdom of grace comes to reconcile sinners to God. This is in direct opposition to the agenda of the kingdom of sin and Satan. The dominion of sin and Satan does not want sinners reconciled to God. In 1 John 3.8, we read this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When somebody sets out to destroy you, they are in for a conflict. How much more when Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil? This is why the two kingdoms are at war. One of them will not prevail. The kingdom of sin and Satan, from the, from the time perspective of these activities in Matthew 10, that kingdom will be defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From our perspective, that kingdom has been defeated on the cross by the death and resurrection of our Savior. So Satan, in his fury, this is how it's described in Revelation 12, in his fury, he stirs up the opposition against Christ and his kingdom. But all of his opposition, as our reading shows tonight, will not slow down the advance Of the kingdom of grace. The opposition will actually enable and accelerate the kingdom of grace. Look what Jesus says in verse 18 You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Bearing witness to the worth of Jesus Christ while simultaneously being bound by earthly powers, is the exact strategy by which the kingdom of grace advances. Bearing witness before your sons and daughters at the exact time that you are bound by their hatred, by their disapproval, is the exact strategy by which the kingdom of grace advances. Why? Because such witness in hardship, such witness in conflict, such witness when what appear to be the strongest earthly powers, the bond of blood, the governors and kings, when we witness to the worth of Christ, when the earthly powers seem to haunt us and threaten us the most, when we witness to Christ's divine power and eternal protection, as greater worth to us than any power and protection of the nations or family blood, we are truly testifying to who Jesus Christ is, to the soul of man. Now, as we slowly wade into this chapter for the next few weeks, I want to show you tonight just a couple more things that are somewhat introductory that will help us think about everything the Lord is saying here to the church. I want to show you the structure of the passage, and then I want to show you tonight the backbone of this passage. The structure of the passage. As we have said already, the whole chapter is about kingdoms in conflict. And this is not some aberration. This is not some kind of rare thing that can go back in the file and be put away now that Christ is risen. The Lord is laying out in this chapter that the advance of his kingdom of grace will always be in a context of conflict. Not every second and every square inch, but ordinarily it will be in conflict because the kingdom of his grace is rushing the gates of hell, advancing bursting in to enemy territory and taking captive souls for salvation. But let's consider the structure for a moment of this entire chapter. We can safely divide chapter 10 into three distinct parts. The first part includes verses 5 through 15. Now this part contains our Lord's directions for the disciples about a very limited and temporal mission, the Galilean mission, verses 5 through 15. The second part of the chapter includes verses 16 through 23. In this part, those limited and temporary features of part one, they're removed. In these verses, 16 through 23, Jesus gives directions on how gospel ministry will proceed later, well after the Galilean mission is over. And you can see this Feature at the end of verse 22, where our Lord says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, in the second part, he has taken into view those future days when the lives of the apostles come to an end. This is beyond the Galilean mission. Now, the third part of the chapter includes verses 24 through 42. And in this part, our Lord engages in this deep, pastoral care, because he knows that an anguish is going to touch the souls of his little flock. He knows that a wound is going to touch the souls of his children. And so in 24 through 42, he engages in this pastoral care to to teach those who will serve him that he knows their wounds, he knows their anguish, and he has words of promise and encouragement that are already a medicine to them as they go into some of the most bitter conflicts of these two kingdoms. Now just to show you that these three sections, these three parts are not completely arbitrary, I want you to look for a phrase. This phrase appears at the end of each of these sections. The exact same expression appears only three times and it's always at the end of these three sections I've given you. The expression from our Lord is, truly I say to you. You find it at, the, at verse 15. You find it again at verse 23. You find it again at verse 42. Truly I say to you. Each occurrence of that expression comes at the end of one of the three major sections, and it is our Lord's way of calming And comforting and emboldening his people. He is saying to us, you can be certain. You can be certain that the things I am telling you will go exactly the way I am telling you they will go. Truly, I say to you, he's putting, of course, his name on his testimony. Things will not fall out any differently than I have told you. I am the first and the last I am the Alpha and the Omega, so truly I say to you, there will be a judgment day. There will be a reckoning. You will be rewarded. There will be protection. So that's the overall structure of Matthew 10. Now there's one more thing I want to show you tonight, and this is the backbone of Matthew 10, and it is found in verse 23, as I alluded to this morning. In verse 23, which comes at the end of the second major section, we read these words. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What is our Lord revealing to his church here? Now the wording of this passage, if we simply come to it thinking like 21st century Westerners and bind ourselves to whatever language skills we have at this very moment, we might think that Jesus is talking about his second coming. The Son of Man comes. That must be at the end of history. But we cannot bring our language skills, and apply them to this passage willy-nilly as we please. We ourselves have to be bound by Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So this expression, the Son of Man comes, must be discovered in the Bible itself, not simply in modern parlance or modern expressions. So let me back up a moment and begin to unpack what this sentence means to us. In verse 23, our Lord starts by saying, you are going to be on the move because of persecution. Where you will be on the move is in all the towns of Israel. So the Lord is telling them that you are going to be fleeing from one town to another within the boundaries of Israel. And before you finish getting through all of those towns, not towns outside of Israel, but before you finish getting through all the towns within Israel, the Son of Man will come. Now that causes a little conundrum for us, doesn't it? Because Jesus is saying, you 12 disciples will not get through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That means they will be alive on the earth, engaged in kingdom conflict ministry, preaching the gospel when the Son of Man comes. What is our Lord saying? Well, the wording that comes at the end of verse 23, the Son of Man comes, is discovered clearly, vividly in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, we have a key passage about the Son of Man coming. And in fact, this passage is so important to the New Testament authors of Scripture, it is quoted over and over again in parts and pieces. I want you to hear it, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions... Now, Daniel's vision is that of a man, a son of man, who is brought before God's throne in heaven, and this one like a son of man comes before the throne of God in heaven on a cloud, and this one like the son of man is given everlasting kingship over all the peoples. In this vision... The Son of Man is being granted the ultimate authority over the people of God and for the people of God. Now, here's a key point. Nothing in the imagery of Daniel 7 suggests that this one like the Son of Man is coming to earth. The coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is not to earth. It says it is to God in heaven. What is Daniel 7 a prophecy of? It is the prophecy of what took place on the other side of the sky when our Lord Jesus Christ ascended after his resurrection in a cloud. He came as a son of man to the throne of God and received a kingdom, received a dominion, an everlasting rule, over all peoples, that's what's being described in Daniel 7. And beloved, that is what is being described in Matthew 10.23. So what our Lord Jesus is saying in Matthew 10.23 to a church that will always be advancing his kingdom of grace in the context of conflict is that his enthronement and reception of an everlasting dominion and authority will take place even while the apostles are alive. And it did. He was crucified. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised. For 40 days, he stayed and taught his disciples. And then at the end of those 40 days, he ascended in a cloud to heaven and was enthroned at the right hand of the Father in our flesh and bone, that of a Son of Man. Why is our Lord saying this in verse 23? Is it simply to help them watch the time? To help them kind of know what events are coming? In a small way, it is that. But it has a a greater weight to it than simply timekeeping. It is this. The Lord is saying that the as you are being chased and persecuted from town to town, before you even get done, you shall see the Son of Man come into his glory, into his kingdom, into his dominion. Just as those earthly powers are showing you their power and their fear and their threat, you will see heavenly power be given to the one you love and the one who loves you. The Lord is speaking of the same event later in Matthew 16 when he says, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's referring to the same ascension, enthronement, reception of authority and power. Now there's a little technical note that you might appreciate you might not there's a very peculiar greek word that is used over and over again in the gospels and in the new testament to describe the second coming of christ at the end of history and that greek word is parousia it is never used in matthew's gospel when he is talking about the coming of the son of man in glory It's not used in 1023. It's not used in 1628. It's a different word. It's an ordinary word for come in these passages, which is just another confirmation to us that parousia, the end times coming of Christ, is not in consideration here. So the point is this. This is the backbone of the entire chapter. Therefore, this is the backbone of all that we could fear, all that we could dread, all that we could want to quit over in serving and following Jesus Christ. There's going to be conflict. People are going to hate us. The sword of division is going to come right into our homes in relations between fathers and children and mothers and children. Those are earthly powers the bond of blood, the bond of community, the rule of governors and kings. But the Lord is saying, you shall see the son of man in his glory above all earthly powers. There is nothing to fear. He who is above all earthly powers rules and settles all the conflicts of earthly powers against his children. He will vindicate them. So in this conflict, the opposition against the church, as we follow Christ and proclaim his gospel, the opposition against us, it now only works to serve us. Every time we are hated, every time we are threatened, every time we are persecuted, every time one of our brothers or sisters loses their head, and this is still happening today in the world, All of those who oppose us and persecute us for our allegiance to Christ, they are actually serving us in their opposition and persecution. How? By making us think and rejoice and rest in that power that is fully secured for our good, in that power that is fully our possession in Christ. Whenever an earthly power comes against us and wounds us, It is to make us immediately think of the heavenly power of the Son of Man who has come to God and received an everlasting kingdom. Beloved, this is the strength of the heart for the Christian. This is why we can hear our Lord say in this passage, do not fear and not think it strange advice. How can we fear having seen the Son of Man? We have seen it. We have heard the testimony of it from the apostles. The Son of Man has come into his glory. How can we be afraid when he who is above all earthly powers rules and orders all earthly powers for us and our salvation and the advance of his kingdom and keeping and guarding and keep us in it? Let's let us go to prayer then.